You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We are live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermack. Coming up on today's programme... Our exercise will help to ensure the credibility, effectiveness and security of our nuclear deterrent. And it sends a clear message that NATO will protect and defend all allies. NATO's largest military exercises since the Cold War are underway. We'll be asking General Sir Richard Sheriff about them. After that, we'll look at China's intervention in the Red Sea and Emmanuel Macron's celebrations in India. We'll also look at why this announcement from two years ago... I am thrilled to announce that Canada and the United Kingdom are officially launching negotiations towards a new free trade agreement. Is no longer something worth celebrating. And finally, we'll take a look at Finland's expansive drinking culture and paradoxically relaxing alcohol laws. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Termack. There have been a steady stream of pretty dire headlines and warnings recently when it comes to NATO, Ukraine and the prospects for a future war with Russia. The NATO military alliance is conducting its biggest exercises since the Cold War, while Vladimir Putin has apparently been looking on from the tiny Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, nestled between the Baltic Sea, Lithuania and Poland. Well, I'm joined for more on all of this now by General Sir Richard Sheriff, NATO's former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. Sir Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. First of all, just give us a sense of the scale of these NATO exercises. How unprecedented are they? Um, well, thank you for, uh, for, for having me. Um, they're pretty unprecedented in recent years. But if you go back to the Cold War, well, this sort of exercise scale of exercise was pretty routine um and i think that tells you that we're in a different era we're in an era where we have to recognize the reality of the threat russia faces and nato is doing that and so exercises of the scale are exactly what is needed at a time like this so it is needed, as you suggest, and also Vladimir Putin is, as I said, looking on from Kaliningrad. He said that this is not, or his office has said that his visit there is not meant to be a message to NATO, but is it? Yes, of course it is. Um, it's, 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 um, it's sending a message, firstly, that Putin is, has, is, is, is taking account of what NATO does, and that's good. And the, the message that Putin needs to take away is as the Secretary General said, that NATO is ready and willing and prepared to defend all NATO member states against any future potential aggression from Russia. It's perhaps interesting in that sense, uh, Sir Richard, that you know Putin on the one hand is saying he's not sending messages to NATO, but as you say, the NATO Secretary General is quite open that this is sending a message, if you will, to Russia, that NATO is willing to defend itself, talking about nuclear deterrence and all of that as well. I mean, you say this is routine in the Cold War. H how should these kind of warnings be taken? Seriously, very seriously. Um, and, and we're in an era where military, effective deterrence is essential if peace is to maintain, to be maintained in what you might call the Euro-Atlantic, transatlantic region, the areas covered by the NATO states. And for deterrence to be effective, it has to be credible. And we might come back to that because you've got to have capable, credible armed forces ready to fight. 
but you've also got to be you also got to communicate that capability and credibility and this is about communicating it well we will come back to that credibility but but on that note i suppose there there's always this balance isn't there between deterrence and the risk of escalation inevitable escalation these these sort of warnings becoming a self fulfilling prophecy that obviously just about did not happen in the cold war although we had some some close calls where does that stand now what is what is that balance in your mind well i think the key uh, the key balancer is communication um and that that was something that you know, existed in the cold war yes there were a couple of occasions when it you know when things got in retrospect and in and with the benefit of hindsight pretty 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 hairy um but but in the cold war there was communication there was the, you know there was the hotline between washington and, and 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 moscow there were the regular arms limitation talks there were at a tactical level there were the um the military missions from britain france and 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 america in with group of soviet forces germany and vice versa and communication is really important to um minimize the risk of miscalculation and if there's one aspect that i think we do need to be concerned about it is that communication with with putin's russia is is difficult it does exist i think we should take heart from the fact that when president biden visited kiev in the first months of the war in 2022 that clearly america had been talking to russia about that visit and they backed off from bombing kiev at the time but nevertheless communication is a fundamental adjunct of of uh, of of deterrence. Well, you mentioned Biden's visit to Ukraine there as well, and I did want to ask you about Ukraine in general. I mean, what kind of what of what kind of support can we expect from Ukraine going for for Ukraine going forward? And I just wonder is this also kind of these NATO military exercises, all of this rhetoric, is this also a way to get people to recognize the importance of that enduring war if ukraine wins then maybe all of these threats threats from russia end um a couple of points you raised there are of real interest firstly um where where is the support going for ukraine well it's not good at the moment i mean i think you have to assume that there will not be any further support from america this year financially as a result of the election the election the impact of of trump on the election is already impacting on the provision of of financial support and that financial package that 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 ukraine had hoped for from washington does not look as if it's going to be heading heading uh, east anytime soon uh the european member states of nato and canada have got to step up now they're not doing badly i mean uh but but they need to be able to need to do more because the key thing now is to support ukraine as it holds the line against russian attacks this year to allow it to train to build up stocks to build up expertise equipment uh, with a view to perhaps a breakout uh, 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 going on the offensive next, ne- uh, at the back end of this year beginning of next um uh, I, I i think the other the other aspect you raise of interest make no assumptions that if ukraine and let's pray when ukraine defeats russia this does not mean that russia becomes overnight a peaceful neighbor it won't won't work that way the reality is that russia under whatever leadership say putin goes an equally hard line or even more hard line that might follow equally determined to rebuild a russian empire equally determined to subjugate ukraine and all that will happen is that russia will rebuild retrain and have another go at some stage in the future and the so what out of all this 
is that NATO faces a generation, if not longer, of deterrence against a Russia determined to uh, take to to attack Ukraine and and subjugate Ukraine, and then would be prepared to move on to other states, in potentially NATO states as well. So this means long-term military deterrence by NATO. Well, just finally, Sir Richard, when you speak of that long-term deterrence, I do have to ask you about this this discussion of conscription at the moment. Rishi Sunak in the UK has ruled it out. You have been quite vocal uh, yourself about the idea that we do we we should not rule out the idea of conscription. I just wonder what the aim here is as well, I suppose. Are we kind of trying to shake the public in Europe and in the West out of a complacency? But we don't want to cause a panic either. We've got we've got to shake the public out of a complacency, but of course we don't want to cause a panic. But as I mean, my point on conscription is that, frankly, conscription to a professional soldier is anathema. It is the last thing a professional soldier needs uh, or wants. Uh, and the British Army particularly has a long tradition of long service uh, volunteers of enormous experience, but it has had to uh, it has had to turn to conscription, of course, in the First World War, the Second World War, and the years after the, the Second World War. Um, the reality with the British Army, the numbers are in free fall. Uh, it's proving incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to recruit the numbers required. Uh, the generation of today's young men and women have uh, uh, have other things to do, um, and. Coming back to it's absolutely tied to deterrence, because in order to be credible, in order to be capable, you've got to have the right people power, manpower, woman power in your armed forces. And if you can't get it by volunteers, you have to look at other methods, which is why I say we have to think the unthinkable and consider conscription. And I think it would be unwise, frankly, to rule it out without thinking about it, because even splashing lots of cash, which is not going to happen. At, at, at recruiting, the armed forces, the army in particular, will not be able to generate the sort of warfighting army that is needed to deter the utter catastrophe that could befall us if we ended up with war with Russia. Well, Sir Richard, thank you very much for joining us. That was General Sir Richard Shiref. Now, here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. The International Court of Justice is set to rule on whether to order Israel to suspend its military operation in Gaza as part of a genocide case brought by South Africa. Meanwhile, Israeli forces are advancing through Khan Yunus, southern Gaza's biggest city. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi have begun a two-day meeting in Bangkok. Washington, Beijing ties and Taiwan will be on the agenda. It comes after Joe Biden and Xi Jinping spoke on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco. A Copa Airlines jet has become the first Boeing 737 MAX 9 to return to service after hundreds of the aircraft were grounded after an accident involving an Alaska Airlines plane. Copa is the flag carrier of Panama. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Emma. Now, whenever there is a geopolitical crisis around the world these days, one of the key questions is how China will react and whether its interests will align with the West. In the case of the Houthis attacking ships in the Red Sea, this appears to be one crisis that China does not want. China has now reportedly asked Iran to rein in the Houthis. Well, Isabel Hilton is a visiting professor at the Lao Institute of King's College, London. She joins me now. Isabel, is China's interest here when it comes to the Houthis about trade, essentially? Houthi attacks are not good for business. 
Well, they're not particularly good for business, although I have to say they're not as bad for Chinese business as they are for others, um, since the Houthis have already said that they won't attack Chinese ships. And although there are some, you know, very large uh, containers that are taking the long way around, there's quite a lot of smaller ships which have appeared uh, doing, you know, regional traffic, Chinese ships, signaling strongly their Chinese identity and pretty confident that they're not going to be attacked. So as always, China seems to have rather mixed motives in this situation. Well, tell us a bit more then about those motives, especially if, as you say, Chinese ships are not going to be attacked. I mean, by by doing this, by speaking to Iran, it's potentially sort of risking a bit of its relationship with Iran as well by doing this. Um, not entirely, because it, it, it can say to Iran um, that both, yes, clearly it would be better if the Houthi uh, were not attacking global shipping, um, but at the same time, it condition its call on uh, a ceasefire, which again, you know, is a criticism of the American position. So China has a very major uh, economic and political relationship with Iran. It is important for China in the context of the Middle East to maintain the focus on the United States as the single important bad actor. So pretty much everything that happens in the United States from the Chinese perspective is the United States fault. Now that gives China heft in the emerging world as the kind where it likes to you know, claim leadership as the big power that can stand up uh, to the United States. There are some other advantages to this situation for China. It has, as we know, uh, extensive road and rail networks across the continent, and the the cost of freight on on Chinese rail networks has gone up as a result of this this, um, situation, but so has traffic. And China will not join any policing operations, although it does have assets in the neighborhood that it could very easily deploy. It maintains a military base in Djibouti, for example. It has escort, uh, naval escort um, vessels that it has used in anti-piracy operations for many years. So it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be difficult for China to join an international effort to uh, defend against Houthi attack, but that is absolutely not on the cards. Talking to Iran is as is is as far as it will go, and that will be presented as you know a, a, the promotion of peace and the and and a, a gesture against uh, U.S. influence. So if it's this promotion of peace, I just wonder what you feel this says about kind of China's emerging foreign policy diplomacy in general. Is there anything different about the way they are approaching this crisis that that kind of gives us hints about how they're going to move going forward? Well, not really. I I mean, the problem with China's global leadership is that it tends not to be underpinned by, you know, the kind of mechanism that you need to deliver a result. So, for example, in Ukraine, uh, as we know, um, Xi Jinping and Putin have a very close relationship, but China positions itself as neutral, despite giving Putin immense cover diplomatically and economically, and put forward a 12-point so-called peace plan, which was 
really 12 bullet points about, you know, things that would be nice were they to happen. Um, but absolutely no, you know, kind of serious effort to bring this about. And calling for a, both a two-state solution and an immediate ceasefire, again, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with the position. But you don't see Beijing, you know, engaged in a serious diplomatic effort to bring it about. Well, speaking of ceasefires, I did also, or war rhetoric, I suppose, I did also want to ask you about North Korea. There's been a lot about North Korea in the news this week, potential for reunification or no potential for reunification. China's foreign minister is headed to North Korea for the 75th anniversary of ties. What might they be telling Kim Jong-un? Well, I'm hoping they will tell Kim Jong-un to calm down a bit because um I, you know for for the for china north korea is a sort of necessary but problematic neighbor and friend in the sense that were north korea not to be there and were the two koreas to be unified then china would have essentially a kind of military a, a, a us um, ally on on a rather important border so it needs north korea as a buffer but it's a very problematic buffer and it has frequently annoyed the chinese in the past i mean if you talk to any chinese official they about north korea they do rather roll their eyes um and of course, Kim Jong-un has been greatly emboldened by his new role as the supplier of, of armaments to Putin and the recipient of advanced um, missile uh, technology assistance from Putin. So he's really feeling his oats at the moment. And I, I think that um, what the Chinese officials will be saying is we are your very big and important friend. Um, so just don't rock the boat too much and we'll all smile for the cameras. Just finally, Isabel, before we let you go, nine billion domestic trips are expected for China's Lunar New Year starting today. What's new this year? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, it's the year of the dragon, which is, you know, as you can imagine in the Chinese uh, in the Chinese calendar, this is a big one. Um, and uh, there's still a lot of pent-up uh, demand for visiting family as a result of, of COVID and the complications that there have been over the last few years. So in addition to the, you know, the domestic uh, travel, so the people who, you know, who have their roots in villages and now live in cities and have to go home at this time of year. Um, but a lot of um, people who are overseas, I have a lot of Chinese friends, were all going back for New Year this year because they haven't been able to, you know, in, in for the previous two or three years. So it's going to be pretty big. It's always big. Nightmare on the roads, nightmare on the railways, nightmare at the airports. But hey, lots of good food at the end of it. <laughs> and everyone goes through it because they want to anyway. Isabel Hilton, thank you very much. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, while China may be something of a known quantity in foreign affairs these days, India is more of a wild card. The world's fifth largest economy is being courted by all sides, north, south, west and east. Yesterday, France's Emmanuel Macron became the latest Western leader to enter the fray as he played guest of honor for India's Republic Day. Well, the political analyst Florence Biederman joins me now from Paris. 
Florence, Macron wasn't necessarily the first choice, as we understand from some reports, that Narendra Modi, the prime minister, wanted to perhaps get the quad together. But how did Macron take to these celebrations? Oh, well, this is not very kind to put him as a second choice, but you are right. Like uh, it was said that uh, Joe Biden uh, was invited and couldn't come. Uh, but still, you know, uh, Emmanuel Macron had invited uh, uh, Narendra Modi for uh, as a guest of honor for the 14th of July National Day celebration in France. So it's kind of uh, reciprocating, and uh, of course he hopes uh, to 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 let's say strengthen the relationship with India as a strategic partner. As you mentioned, like India is courted by by many Western countries also as a kind of counterweight to China. Uh, and Macron hopes also, obviously, to 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 have new deals, economic deals to to sell uh, uh, jet uh, fire uh, firefighter jets to um, to India, and also maybe uh, some nuclear reactors. So there is a, a very also bilateral and um, commercial aspect in his visit. We'll get to some of those deals shortly, but I also wanted to ask, just from India's perspective, on this on this day, there was quite a show of military might uh, during a parade. Presumably, Emmanuel Macron might would be one of those who would like some of those weapons sent to Ukraine. Do you imagine any of those discussions taking place? Yes, uh, I mean, um, but Modi being uh, an ally uh, of Russia, you know, he, he plays kind of uh, he plays kind of a strange role. You know, he's close to the Western uh, countries for on many aspects, but he still is close to Vladimir Putin. Uh, Russia has been the, the first arm uh, procurement to India, uh, so he's not very enthusiastic, let's say, in, uh, in his support to Ukraine. So definitely, and in any case, if, if France is selling weapons, I'm not sure they can have a, a say in how they will be used later on. Well, I think to, to that point, Florence, I mean, India is one of these countries where, frankly, one imagines there are lots of awkward conversations behind the scenes when Western leaders visit, given, as you say, the, the sort of Russia alliance and, and also generally Narendra Modi's kind of quite nationalist tendencies. What were Emmanuel Macron's other priorities? Do you, do you get the sense that he had any difficult conversations? He supposed, of course, to, I say of course, because this is what all Western leaders would say when they go and, and visit a country who is not uh, considered as completely democratic. He is supposed to, to talk uh, about human rights. Um, uh, but, you know, Narendra Modi is seen, by, especially by NGOs, very much criticized and uh, uh, Macron's visit also has been uh, a bit criticized uh, as a, a very nationalist regime, uh, becoming more autocratic than democratic. Uh, he is also accused and very criticized of uh, persecuting my religious minority. Freedom of expression seems to be more and more limited. So on this aspect, there there is a case of a French journalist who has been banned from reporting in India, and it will uh, it will be evoked. Maybe not by Macron himself, but probably by by his foreign minister who is uh, uh, in his delegation. So, yes, there will be some some talks, but it may not be the talks done by Macron, but by, let's say, his ministers. So, given all, all of those things that you just listed there, I just wonder, you also mentioned at the top that, you know, part of the belief in the West or hope is that India can serve as a counterweight to China, as many are pulling out there. 
Where does India, do you feel, fit into France's broader kind of Asia-Pacific plans, given that it is also a complicated relationship? Well, you know, Asia-Pacific plans for France, I mean, they, they are just, they are not as as strong and as prevalent as other countries. I mean, it's, uh, I would say, France tried to integrate itself uh, in this strategy. It's not that by itself it has a lot of weight uh, uh, internationally. So I guess whatever alliance you can make with such an important uh, country economically, uh, politically, so is, is, is uh, um, something positive. Uh, I'm not sure there is really a big, big strategy where uh, India would have this or that role. It's just that it's one of the main actors in the area. Uh, so obviously uh, you have to to court it and to take it into account in your in your uh, in your point of view. And just finally, to sort of follow up on that, as you suggest, in terms of pivoting between different countries, France, of course, was was quite famously at this point snubbed by Australia and, and the Quad, if you will, when it came to submarines. I wonder if, in that sense, this kind of pivot to India plays into that. What kind of deals did uh, France get out of India, both military and economically? Well, it has uh, it has uh, made some big contract on fighter jets. Uh, there is also a discussion uh, to 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 buy Scorpion class submarines, and you know, and those are multi billion dollar deals. So yes, obviously, after you've been snapped by the five eyes, you 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 will uh, you will turn to uh, any other country in the area that uh, that can help you reinforcing your presence and and sending your weapons. Florence Biederman, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. Now, one of the priorities for the United Kingdom ever since Brexit has been to boost trading relationships with other parts of the world. And yet, reports today are that the UK has walked away from trade talks with Canada, a Commonwealth member. Well, Paul Waldy is Europe correspondent for The Globe and Mail. Paul, thanks very much for joining us. What were the sticking points? Well, the sticking points appear to be, as they tend to be in these these trade discussions, agriculture and specifically dairy products and beef, both of which are very contentious for Canada. They're always a sticking point when it comes to negotiating trade agreements with any partner, uh, let alone Britain. What, what is it about agriculture? It is always about agriculture. Who do you get the sense was playing hardball here? Well, Canada always plays hardball when it comes to dairy products because Canada <laughs> has a supply management system for uh, milk, uh, eggs, cheese, chicken, things like that. And it, it controls not only the prices, it controls the production, it controls basically everything to do with that industry. So it's something that that Canada clings on to all the time because it is highly political. The farmers who are, most of the dairy farmers are in Ontario and Quebec, where most of the seats in Parliament are located. So it is a very political issue. And Canada has ceded ground in some trade agreements, particularly with the US, and it did also with the European Union. So dairy farmers Farmers were very keen not to see any ground loss when it came to negotiating a deal with the UK. And beef farmers in Canada have been very angry that the UK continues to ban uh, Canadian beef and, you know, US as well, because Canada and the US use uh, products like hormone treated meat and that kind of thing that the UK doesn't like. So those have been the two major issues. 
So given those issues about dairy and beef, I just wonder, like, how much did this actually matter to Canada? Is part of the challenge here that the UK maybe had more of an interest than Canada did? I think that's true. I think this probably matters more to the UK than Canada, which is why I think you've seen Canada take such a firm position that the UK felt it had no option but to walk away. I think Canada knows that the UK is a bit more vulnerable because the the trade agreement that was in place, what, what had happened is after Brexit, Canada and the UK had basically rolled over the European Union agreement that Canada had with, uh, with the EU. So that deal was set to expire. Most parts of that deal was set to expire in March, which was going to leave the UK with virtually no access uh, to the Canadian market for things like these agricultural products and also for automobiles, which would have lost some of the exemptions that existed under the EU deal. So I think Canada felt that the UK needed this deal more than Canada did and that Canada can be prepared to wait it out. Well, and given that, then I just wonder what your sense is of what Canadian businesses, imports and exports will do as a result of this. Will this kind of boost trade with the European Union? As you mentioned, there is a trade agreement there or for that matter with the US. Will there be a sort of pivot away from the UK as these tariff free, this tariff free access ends? Well, I think for the for the most contentious issues, uh, agriculture and automobiles, it probably won't make that much difference to the Canadian side because beef farmers haven't been exporting beef into Britain anyway, and there have been longstanding complaints about that. Uh, as far as dairy dairy farmers go, they probably don't care. They, they would just assume not see any more uh, British cheese come into the Canadian market. And on the auto side, there's so much trade in autos between Canada and the US and other countries that probably is not going to mean that much to the Canadian market. I will say, though, that where this gets complicated for Britain is the UK is trying to enter the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, which involves 11 countries on the Pacific side of the world, including Canada. And this could hold that up because, of course, the UK, Canada doesn't want to see the UK involved in that if it's not going to give any more access to beef. And also, Canada has been pointing to the UK's agreements with Australia and New Zealand and saying, look, you've given them a lot more access uh, to the agricultural products, imports of agricultural products than you're prepared to give us. So I think Canada's in this for the long haul, and it may have to be up to Britain to back down. Well, just quickly then, Paul, at the end, is there any chance, and this this deal is paused, as I understand at the moment, is there any real chance of it being revived? I think so, but it will be difficult, particularly on, on the dairy issue, because Canada is under so much political pressure, the Canadian government, not to cede any ground on that issue, that it'll be difficult. But you have to figure that these two countries, if any two countries can reach a trade deal, it's got to be these two. It all comes down to dairy. Paul Waldy there. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally, to Finland, which has some of Europe's strictest laws regulating alcohol sales and yet also the highest rates of harm attributed to drinking. Still, the country's current government has drawn up plans to slacken some of its laws. Our Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsov, has more. A night out in one of Helsinki's popular bars is just like anywhere else in the world. Young people having fun, dancing and drinking. It's all fine downing a drink or two at the club, but when traveling to Finland most foreigners are surprised that you can only buy wines and other strong alcoholic beverages, well, anything besides beer and cider really, in the state-run alco shops. In fact, Finns aren't even allowed to purchase things like fine European wines direct from the producer's webshop or drinks like whiskey or gin straight from one of Finland's several award-winning distilleries. 
That's all about to change if Finland's current government actually keeps its pledge to open up the heavily regulated alcohol market. In its policy program, the government says it wants to bring Finland's alcohol policy more in line with the other European countries. This would mean allowing supermarkets to sell fermented beverages that contain up to 8% alcohol. Later on, the government says it will examine the possibility to allow sales of wines outside the state monopoly shops. And that's not all. The government will also allow Finnish microbreweries, distilleries and vineyards to sell their products directly to consumers. And the buying of alcohol through distance selling from companies operating in the other EU countries will also now be allowed. Let's ask one of the country's leading public experts on alcohol policy what these changes would mean in terms of the public health. My name is Pia Magela and I'm a research professor in DHL, the Finnish Institute for Health and Welfare. And for the whole of my career I've been studying alcohol issues from different angles and points of view. There's very good research evidence uh, that uh, these kinds of regulations on fiscal availability and economic availability and also marketing, which can be thought of as kind of uh, psychological availability, that all those uh, have an impact on how much the population drinks and therefore also on how much harm, alcohol-related harm, will ensue. And there's lots of research evidence that um, the kinds of regulations that we have used in Finland, regulating the price of alcohol by taxes, high taxes, and regulating the fiscal availability of, of alcohol, and also regulating marketing. They are all the best cost-effective ways to regulate alcohol. So I think the, the correct question would be, why do the other countries not use the same policies as we do? At the Helsinki Distilling Company's whiskey cellar, just minutes from downtown Helsinki, the master blender Kai Kilpinen and master distiller Mikko Mykkänen are stacking old wooden casks on shelves and filling them up with a distillate that will age in these barrels for a minimum of 10 years. The Helsinki Distilling Company is one of the several craft makers of strong alcoholic beverages that would be affected by the proposed changes to Finland's alcohol laws. I'm Kai Kilpinen. I'm the master blender and co-founder of the Helsinki Distilling Company. The plans, uh, the most important one of them is the right to sell directly from the distillery. That's the, That is a big thing just because of the sales, but... Uh, it will also support our visitor center. Often, oftentimes we have a lot of people coming from abroad and, and, and they, they come for our tastings and tours and, and then they want to buy a bottle of our whiskey. But we have to tell them, sorry, you, we, we can't sell it to you uh, here. You have to go to State Monopoly to, to, to get it. And, and if it's weekend, then the, the shops are probably closed and, and everything. So it's, it, it's, it's been a, a big, big issue. So that would definitely be be a big thing. And then, of course, the online sales would be uh, something that might be a, a very interesting prospect uh, because under the current law, we cannot even set up an online shop to sell abroad. Mykkänen and Kilpinen are not convinced that the proposed changes to Finland's alcohol laws would result in more health problems. 
Mikko Mykkänen, CEO, Master Distiller, co-founder of the company. Well, I don't see it like that. Uh, I see that people who want to get wasted or get the bottle for misusing it, they will get it anyway. That happened also during the uh, prohibition legislation, and, and it's not difficult to get alcohol um, as such in Finland from illegal ways also. So the thing is just that we are just suffering from from this uh, thinking that we are somehow like genetically different from the other countries, other people of the Europe and, and And that makes me feel very, very sad. One thing I might add is that that we're selling, we're sellers of premium products. We sell our products cost uh, something around 60 to 80 uh, euros a bottle. So that's not something for, for, for misuse of alcohol usually. There's no getting around the fact that making alcohol more easily available also makes people drink more, especially in a heavily regulated market like Finland. But cultural factors play a role as well. Research shows that younger Finns drink less and that alcohol-related deaths have gone down by a third in 15 years while the regulation of alcohol sales has not changed significantly. One thing is for sure. If the government goes ahead with the proposed changes, it will most certainly be a vote winner. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Thank you very much, Petri. After Sir Richard's introduction to this show, perhaps we could all use an extra glass of wine on a Friday evening. And that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. Wishing you all a good weekend. I'm Chris Chermak. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.